Okay. Um, let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life we may not forget you, but we may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This is uncomfortable. I'm going to move it down here. Okay. Just a little bit of review um, from last time. Confession and absolution. We'll be talking about confession and absolution a right long while. Uh, so, to, where we need to review to pick up for today is this question. Where does confession and absolution take place? Where does it happen? Uh, because there's multiple answers to this, if you remember. There's at least two. Uh, actually, there are two, exactly two. Because confession and absolution takes place first on the horizontal plane, which is you and you and God. And in that, in that instance, confession and absolution is an acquittal of sin. It is an ob obliteration of sin. That sin is taken to God and it's blasted apart and that it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, which is why St. John can write in his epistles that you have nothing to fear on the day of judgment. Because what are you going to be judged for? Well, there's nothing there to judge. That's the thing. So uh, you're going to be judged on the basis of Christ. Because you're baptized into Christ and clothed with his righteousness. So when the Father looks at you, what does he see? He sees his son, and then you take the body and blood of Jesus and put it into you so that your flesh is Jesus' flesh and your blood is Jesus' blood. What pumps through your body is, ends up being Jesus' blood. So when the Father looks into you, what does he see inside? Jesus. So it's not just that you're wearing like a Jesus disguise to where you go up to heaven and you go, oh, hi, I, I'm Jesus, let me in. Uh, but you are actually Jesus on the outside and on the inside because Jesus covers you with himself and fills you with himself. So what's left of you and then the works that you are judged for because you are judged on the basis of your works, which we'll talk about in another class, so don't ask me about that today. You're judged on the basis of your works and the works that you do, all the good that you do, you do in and because of and through Christ. Christ. So everything that is in you, everything about you, and everything that you do on the last day that you will be judged for is all on the basis of Christ. And if everything is on the basis of Christ, then what do you have to fear about the things that are your own? Nothing, because none of it is your own. Christ has taken away all of the things that are your own, and he has replaced it with all of the things that are his that you now get to have. And you become an heir. So my dad used to say, I'm taking a little uh, wagon behind me when I go to heaven. I said, yeah, think about it. <laughs> of course, he was kind of a jerk. 
joke, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that'd be a big joke. Uh-huh. Yeah, you don't, you don't. That's what he did. Yeah. He ended up with the bird. <laughs> yeah, so you don't, you don't need to worry about that. On the horizontal, or on the vertical plane, your sins are annihilated, and there's nothing left to be judged for except the righteousness of Christ that is in you. So those who believe long for the coming of Christ, and those who do not dread the coming of Christ. There's, there's nobody who... There's nobody who deep down knows Christ or believes that Christ is not coming. Deep down, everybody knows. Either he is or he, or either you're with him or you're not with him. And if you are, you have nothing to be afraid of. And if you are not, deep down, deep down, you kind of know if, if, you know, if he really is coming, well, then I'm probably in trouble. Um, so that's the vertical plane. Now, the other one is the horizontal plane. Vertical is acquittal. So think of like a courtroom. You're acquitted. But the horizontal, you can't acquit sins on the horizontal level. Man cannot forgive sins. Uh, so when your neighbor faults you or you fault your neighbor, and then you go to them and you ask them for forgiveness and they say, I forgive you, it's not that they are acquitting you of your sins so that, you know, when you look God face to face, you say, well, my neighbor Bob said my sins were forgiven, so that should be good enough for you, right, Lord? And he says, well, no, because your neighbor Bob was a sinner too. So it's not that your sins are acquitted, but it's moving past sins on the horizontal level. So remember, forgiveness on that plane is not forgetting, but it is living as if you had forgotten, a significantly more difficult thing to do. It is not permitting that the sin or the fault or the slight or the bad feelings or the ill will become the things that define your relationship. And very often, you see that. Actually, it's more common to see that than it is to see people that actually forgive. Uh, because you see folks that say, well, um, so-and-so did this, or I could never trust them again. And you say, ah, if you, if you ever in the position where you say, I could never trust them again, then you're holding on to something and not moving past it. Grudges are a terrible thing. Um, hatred toward your neighbor is a terrible thing. One of the reasons the Lord doesn't want you to hate your neighbor is because it's so bad for you. One, because hatred is, is unforgiveness, and the person who does not forgive cannot be forgiven. So there's that already, is, is that you are, you are in some sense saying, I don't want the forgiveness of sins, but then you are, in hating your neighbor, drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. That's what it is to hate, drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die, while slowly you are the one who dies. It doesn't harm your enemy. Hating your neighbor doesn't do anything for your neighbor, but it does kill you. And under the category of hate, I do place things like grudge-bearing. Grudge-bearing is hatred. Uh, so those are all things to be rid of. Uh, make up with the people who have slighted you. Matthew 18, if somebody sins against you or if you perceive that somebody has sinned against you, go to them. That's the thing that we fail to understand all too often about Matthew 18 and Christ's model for reconciliation. The impetus is not on the person who committed the sin. 
to return and to say, I've committed a sin, I'm sorry. The impetus is on the person who was sinned against to go to that person and say, I, I feel bad about such and such. I, I feel like you've wronged me and I really think that we need to seek reconciliation. It's not on the sinner, it's on the person who was sinned against to go to him and initiate reconciliation. Uh, that's the beginning of forgiveness. Get over yourself and start looking with the eyes of God. That's what the Lord wishes for you, is to look at everyone with his lenses, his glasses, to see people the way that he sees people and to love them in the same way that he loves them. So that you can say, hey, uh, you know, if it were up to me, I'd, I think I'd probably hate your guts, but Jesus loves you, so I love you too. What can I do for you? That's the way that we are. That's, and only then, when you are wearing those kinds of glasses, when you're made right with your neighbor, uh, only then can you really love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you. If you hold grudges, you can never do it. Yes? What if it's somebody that you're close to or a friend or somebody that you love and they hurt you or do something? Mm -hmm. Is it necessary to even go to them? I mean, a lot of times I just go, I know where that came from. I know why they did that. It's not about me. It's, and I forgive them by just brushing it aside. Uh, and you're, you're saying in the sense, not the kind of being hurt where your friendship is terminated because right. of it, but just... I just think, well, I understand oh, yeah. why they said that's, that's, that's extending grace and mercy. Okay. Yeah, and that's, that's, on, that's on you to not live as if those hurts and those stresses and those inconveniences are the things that now dictate how you interact with that person. So you don't have to always run to the people who hurt you and say, you did this to me. And... No, but you are welcome to. And if you feel like it needs to be done, then the impetus is on you gotcha. to do it. Not, you know... And you see this a lot in the Christian church too. Well, so and so did that to me, and I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do anything until they come and apologize to me. And you say, oh, but what would your Lord have you do? Because the Lord has laid it out pretty clearly that you are to go to them. Well, I don't want to talk to them. Hmm. Then the problem here isn't with them. And I'm not condoning whatever they did to you, but the problem right now isn't with them, it's with you. Because right now you've got a big old mug of poison and you're slowly sipping it down and I'd really like to intercept you before you down the whole mug. Because once you down the whole mug, it's a whole lot harder to get you back and on the right track. So one really good uh, strategy for you is to pray for the people that you hate. Pray for the people that have caused you strife. Pray for their well-being. Pray for the Lord to look out for them. Pray for the Lord to repair their lives and your relationships with them. And you will find that you cannot both hate somebody and pray for them. One of those two things is going to give. And if you are being a good Christian and maintaining the discipline of prayer, which I emphasize discipline because we all know, and, and don't think that I'm deluded here, like some pastor platitude, oh, you know, every, all Christians are supposed to pray. You know, no, I know. Uh, it's a lot harder to pray for the people that you hate than you think. 
Which is funny, isn't it? It's like the prophet Jonah, who goes to Nineveh and preaches, that, preaches uh, repentance to them and then is angry when they repent. Well, doggone it, I wanted you to send him to hell, God. I wanted you to blast him off the face of the earth. I didn't think they'd actually repent. You know, something's got to give. You, you, prayer is very difficult, and that's why it is a discipline. You maintain the discipline of praying for your enemies, and then your, uh, you know, the scales will begin to fall from your eyes, and the Lord will begin to work on your heart and soften it a little bit, little by little. Uh, he'll take a hammer and a chisel and you know, break little piece after little piece off of that hardened, calcified heart of yours, and you will find that you don't hate your neighbor because now Christ is the one who will define how you interact with them and what your relationship is and not the faults that they committed against you or your memory of those faults. You will never forget, but you move past. So, vertical plane is acquittal. Horizontal plane is moving beyond. Those are the two places where sin happens. Um, so today we need to talk more about sin. We need to talk about what it does, and we need to talk about what it is. So um, I want to look at a couple passages here for you. The first one is Proverbs 11.19. And while you're looking at that, I'm going to tell you basically what sin is in a nutshell is that it is or I guess what its effect on you, what it does to you, is that sin is an evil death. Um, sin is evil death, a bad death. So when I talk about the pastor only having one job, and you know, the most diehard of Lutherans say, well, no, you have three jobs, to preach, to teach, and to administer the sacraments. And I say, ah, but all of those things stem from what my one true job is, which is to prepare the Lord's people for a good death, or, you know, prepare the Lord's people to die well. How do you die well? That's the question. How do you die well? And to die well is to die in the faith, with sins forgiven, trusting in the mercies and promises of God, and having lived piously according to God's will and word and by his efforts in you. That's what it is to die well. So now you see that the preaching and the teaching and the administration of the sacraments all serve that one primary goal. Um, so that is you dying well. To die ill, to die evilly, uh, is to die in sin. So the pastor and the church work to ensure that that is not how you die. So let's look at this. Um, Proverbs 11 19, as righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Evil is not a harmless thing. Even the smallest of evils that the world would say, oh, well, that's a relatively benign thing, or that's relatively harmless. It isn't. Any evil, no matter how great or small, is, is deadly. And you are to steer away from all evil. This is a refrain of this class. I have a few refrains that I want you to remember. Death and resurrection is the only story of scripture. That's one. And this is, this is another one. Um, flee from what is evil and touch what is good. That's, the Bible is screaming that to you. Flee from what is evil and touch what is good. And touch is very important. Don't touch evil, touch good. Flee from what is evil. 
Touch is really important. COVID reminded us of that. I think many of us had forgotten how incredibly important touch is. I mean, I'll, I'll give it to you from my perspective. How do you go and be one-on-one -on -one with a person in the nursing home and give, you know, absolve them and, and give them the benediction without putting your hand on their head and making the sign of the cross on their forehead? Or if I'm allowed to do that, how do you do it and justify the barrier of wearing a glove? Well, that isn't touch. Your touch is being contracepted, quite literally. You're putting something over your touch and your touch remains trapped within that container. You're contracepting it. And um, touch is so, so incredibly important. Remember, what is the gospel? The touch of Jesus. What did Jesus do to the sick and the blind and the lame? He touched them. What did Jesus do to lepers? He touches them. You know, uh, there's a really, there was a great paper at Symposia and it was, it was given by one of my really close friends who's a professor there. And it was on uh, taking care of the body of Jesus, the, the women who come and, and anoint the body of Jesus, and what that means. And essentially, the point of his paper was Jesus takes into his own physical body all of our infirmities. So when the, one of the reasons why he touches is not just so that power goes out of him, but that there is a trade. You know, the blessed exchange, which happens where, Seth? The blessed exchange. Do you remember where that happens? Yes, that's what the blessed exchange is. Do you remember where that happens, though? Where does he take on the sins of the world? He takes them to the cross, but where does he put them on his shoulders? Where does he receive them? He goes into the Jordan. Oh, and he uh, baptized? Yes, when Jesus is baptized, that's when the blessed exchange begins. You go into the baptismal water. This is where you have to suspend your idea of what time is and how time works because you don't have a clue. And I say that as one of you. <laughs> uh, so you go into the baptismal font and you get clean. We talked about this. This is just a little review. You go in and you get clean because all of the things that are on you get washed off into that water. Jesus goes into that water and he cleans the water up so that it's clean for you by taking all of the dirt that you put in there out and putting it on himself. That's how baptism works. That's why Jesus has to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. So the body of Jesus though, as he performs his ministry, continues to be a, an ongoing act of the blessed exchange. So it's not just like, you know, when the woman touches the hem of his garment and he says he feels power going out of him, it's not just that he touches and something goes out of him into the other person, it's also that something in the person gets sucked into him. He continues to trade places. Every person that he touches, something goes out of him and something comes into him. And there's a really, really neat, it's a short story by Stephen King, but they made, there's a movie of it called The Green Mile. Have you ever seen The Green Mile? I would encourage you to watch it, but don't watch it with me because that's one of very few movies where I actually blubber and it's ugly and embarrassing. So my wife is the only one allowed to watch that with me. But it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. 
And it's about a man on death row who was falsely imprisoned because he was black. Um, he was a, a slave. And so he was, they accused him of committing a crime because they couldn't find the person who did it and he was black. So they just said, well, he did it. But he was, he was a very large man, very big and muscular, and so they are all afraid of him, but he is very kind and gentle. And it's about him being on death row, and they discover that he actually has a power where he can heal. And when he heals somebody, he takes their ailment into himself, and then he expels it from himself, and it looks like you know a swarm of black flies that he has to get rid of out of his own body. But the picture of him healing by touching and by sucking into himself whatever was ailing the other person is beautiful and it's supposed to be somewhat of a Christ-like figure which is somewhat ironic coming from Stephen King but nonetheless truth is truth wherever it is and he's sort of a Christ-like figure but it's really beautiful for that image of not only putting power out but sucking power in. So uh, Run away from what is evil, because touch is important. If you touch something that is evil, you're actually taking that into yourself. If you touch what is good, you're taking that into yourself. That's why when pastor goes to give blessings to the children, I don't just hover my hand over them. I touch them, and I, and I want to shake your hand. I want there to be touch. When, when you come to private confession and absolution, I will touch you. I will put my hands on your head. I will make the sign of the cross. You cannot get away from it. Uh, and, and all of that is very important. Now, let's look to Second Chronicles 7.14. And then we'll be jumping from there to 1 John. Now, we've looked at this before. This is the dedication of the temple. But there's one verse here that's really important. Second uh, Chronicles 7.14, and this is part of the Lord's promise, and he says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, this is something that's really important, and turn from their wicked ways. Remember what I told you about repentance. What is repentance? Turning. Turning away. So this is repentance. If my people turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them. It, when they call to me, when they come to me with contrite hearts, when they seek me in repentance, when they turn away, metanoia, when, they're, when they do an about face from what they were looking at before and turn back to me, I will hear them. And it's not conditional to say, I'm not going to listen to them if, they're, if they don't do this. It's, it's a promise that says, I promise you, when you repent and you're contrite and you come to me, I'm not going to ignore you. I will hear you and I will grant you absolution and you will live. So sin is an evil death, but the forgiveness of sins is a good death. And both of those are summed up here in 1 John. 1 John 1, 8-9, which is often used in the liturgy. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we're liars, and the truth is not in us. And there's more to 
the truth is not in us. You can call somebody a liar and it's already assumed that you're saying, yeah, you, you're not truthful. But you are deceiving yourself and also the truth is not in you. And what, do we, what or who do we know is the truth? Jesus, yes. You have to, you know, this is another thing I want you to leave this whole catechumenate knowing. When we talk about the word, we're not talking only about things that come out of the mouth of the pastor. Nothing irritates me more than Lutherans that consider, um, I go to church to be fed, and then you say, okay, how are you fed? And they say, by the word. And you say, okay, what's the most important part of the service? And they say, well, listening to the word. And I listen to the sermon, and then you go, Oh, no, you are coming to be fed by the word, but what is the word? It's Christ himself. And he speaks about himself, but then he also gives you himself. He tears chunks out of his own body and puts them in your mouth. And he, you know, he opens his side and gives you blood to drink. You're fed by the word, but in a very literal sense, not by vocables, but by the very person who not only gives you the food, but who is also himself the food he gives. So the word is not a thing. It is a person. When we say this is the word of the Lord, we're, we're talking about a person. Not Otherwise, I would say these are the words of the Lord. And you stand for the gospel because the words and deeds of Jesus are Jesus. And in the reading of the gospel and in the, the proclamation of the word in a sermon, it is Jesus. You're receiving Jesus and Jesus is giving himself. Where the words and deeds of Jesus are, there Jesus is, and there Jesus is working, and there Jesus is speaking. So you, you encounter Jesus in many different ways and Jesus touches you, uh, but you have, to, you have to stop this understanding that the word is nothing but a thing. Like we say, well, what's the word of God? Well, I've got it right here, the word of God. That's, these are the words of God. God is more than print on a page. And we have a whole lesson about the word and what it is, so I'll leave it at that. But if we confess our sins, however, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He will always forgive us our sins. He, he keeps his promise. He's faithful to his promise. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Ah, it's not just about you, but he is a liar. You make him a liar if you say, I don't have sin. And it's not because he looks at you and says, hey, you damn dirty sinner, listen to me. And you go, I ain't no sinner. And he's, and he's you calling me a liar? That's not, what it, that's not what it's about. You are making him to be a liar because he says, I want to love you. And for me to love you, I need to forgive your sins. For you to draw close to me, I have to cleanse you. You are Peter who says, May it never be, O Lord, that you should wash my feet. And he goes, mm -hmm. uh, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. That's what it is. That's what it is to say. And I, I don't know if this is, this is a spiritual reality, but I don't know if this is John taking a dig at Peter, which he does often. Uh, who's the first one that makes it to the tomb in John's gospel to stoop in and look? The younger disciple. Yeah, Peter, that old man, he couldn't run as fast as I could. I got there first. Of course, he looked in first, but I beat him there. There's all that kind of stuff. Or when they go to the, the high priest. Seth, this was just on Wednesday. What happens when they go to the, 
house of Caiaphas, what happens to Peter at, when, at the door? That was after he got in, but what happened when they first got there? Do you remember? He denied that, he knew Jesus. that was after he got in. You're, all, you're right, but what happens when they first get to the door and they try to go in? Do you remember? I'm only picking on you because you're, you're from midweek and we just did this. Uh, Peter, didn't get, Peter didn't get to go in. Though the other, Peter and the other disciple go, and the other disciple just walks right on in because they know him, but Peter had to stay outside. And then the other disciple had to go back out and say, oh, he's with me, before Peter could be let in. And he was sure to include that in his gospel. <laughs> you know, little things like that. But this is the reality. So if, if you want the image to go along with this, hey, calling Jesus a liar or we don't have truth in us, this is it. Jesus is telling you, unless you are washed, you have no part it with me. I want to wash your feet. And you say, no, no, Lord, you're the, you're the Lord. You don't wash my feet. And he says, you don't, you're not listening to me. You don't understand what I'm saying. Uh, now, why do we need this? Well, we know that we're sinners. Thing that you just related to point to us about being prideful because that is sort of like the one disciple say, Oh, look at me, I got to go in and I had to come back out and get you. Is was that in there for our reproof and teaching? Was that a teaching moment? Certainly could be. Certainly could be. I mean, the washing of the disciples' feet surely is. And the whole thing, you know, Jesus saying, well, you know, as I have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And you look at that and you say, well, if we're going to be, sorry, if we're going to be Bible thumpers, and the only way that we're going to read Scripture is that every word means literally no more and no less than what its literal definition is, then every Maundy Thursday, we shouldn't be having communion, we should be having a foot washing ceremony. And some churches do that, and I am appalled by that. One, because I think feet are disgusting, and I love you all, but I really don't want to wash your feet. But two, because that's not the point of what Jesus is saying, is the point of the act that he cleanses his disciples' feet. Not really. It's the sign of washing, it's the proclamation that they are unclean and that they need somebody to be they need somebody external to come and wash them. Could they have washed their own feet? Yes. But it, but they need a different kind of washing. In order to have a part with Jesus, Jesus has to be the one to wash them. It's not like, you know, we have Monday Thursday and then I look out at all of you and I say, "Unless you want to, you know, leave this church and we don't have any part with you, then you have to let us wash your feet." That's gross. And, and I wouldn't blame you if at that point you decided you didn't want to have any part with us. Because <laughs> hey, that's, not, that's not really the point of it. And the point of it is that Jesus is the one who comes to serve, not to be served. And that any who follow Jesus are also to love one another, to lead one another to Christ, and to serve one another. That's what it's about. Now, here's the issue. This is by a cartoonist named Adam Ford. If you've ever heard of the Babylon Bee... Adam Ford also works on the Babylon Bee. Uh, this is great. Never, the worst advice you can ever give somebody is to, to, for them to follow their heart. 
Oh, just follow your heart. Your, your heart can never lead you astray. Well, look at this. Your heart's going to lead you astray, okay? Don't look into yourself because, like I said, you can choose not to sin, but you can never choose, or, but you cannot choose never to sin. And this is, this is it right now. If you really look at your heart and you say, okay, what are we going to do today? Your heart is always going to tell you, well, let's go do some sinning. Uh, what, is, what is, there's some, there's, yeah, yeah. There's some movie where the, where, and I don't remember what it is, that this, the guy goes, well, I got me some sinning to do. And I always think of that with this. He says, well, I better go to church on Sunday because after that I got me some sinning to do. And you just laugh about it because it's so antithetical to what we're about. But to look into yourself. You know, the whole point of the gospel is that you're looking outside of yourself. So to look into yourself, what is the only thing that you see? It's sin. This is, this is your state. So here's Romans 7, of course. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. There it is. Your wills are warring because you will. You, I want to do what is good. My will is regenerated. But somehow I hit these roadblocks where I want to do what is good, and then I don't do it. And then I'm kicking myself because I didn't do it. And I wanted to. But then I also wanted to do the thing that was wrong. And then you start to spiral. And you, so, you know, sometimes confession and absolution is the pastor, you know, settle down. Sometimes that's, that's, that's what it is, like you know, the movie Airplane, when the, when the woman goes into hysterics and they go, all right, let's go, we'll get this woman out of her hysteria. Okay? For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It's, always, it's no longer I. Why? Because you are now a new creature in Christ. So if you're doing something good, it's the new man, it's the Christ who works in you. And if it's something evil, it's not really me. I have a new identity. That wasn't me. And you can say that. You can do something and then you can reflect on it and go, why, why, did, that, why did I do that? That wasn't me. I never would have thought to do that. I never would have said that. that's not me. And that's the truth. You're, you're, uh, you're with St. Paul here. So, yes. Okay. Um, it came, this is real. <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't any like them, but there was a, a couple that came from maybe Oregon area, but they were very faithful in coming. Okay. So, um, in Sunday school, I believe it was, or Bible class, this uh, man said, you know, I went out last night and I had, you know, I, it was a lot of fun. And Preacher said, well, uh, you know, maybe that wasn't a good idea. And uh, he said, well, I sure had a lot of fun doing it, though. <laughs> well, I bet you did. <laughs> That's... And then the pastor goes, nothing. I mean, you know, what does he say? No, no, I, I sure had a lot of fun doing it. I, I bet you did. Sin is, <laughs> sin is fun. <laughs> and he was That's old, a... I mean, like, he's probably in his 60s or 70s. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It does, it, lots of things are fun. It doesn't mean they're good. <laughs> you know, uh, I, will, I will say this, too, about your husband. Uh, last night after the council meeting, which was at the parsonage, we had a, a supper there, and it's typically a pretty good time. And after everybody left, Carolyn and I were cleaning the dishes, and she just stopped, and she turned off the faucet, and she said, That bruised beerman... <laughs> He is such a nice man to have at a gathering like this. If I had to go to a party and I was only allowed to bring one person and it was guaranteed that I wouldn't know anybody else, 
Bruce Beerman would probably be the one that I would think to bring, because he is just so funny. And then he breaks the ice, and everybody has a good time with him. <laughs> just don't tell him that, because you, know, you don't want to. <laughs> so sin is an evil death, but what is sin? There's a lot of effects of sin. Obviously, uh, the big one is death. You know that anybody who sins dies. That's just sort of, you know, that's the deeper law of creation, or what St. C.S. Lewis, St. Louis. Well, you know, that fits too, but uh, C.S. Lewis calls the, the deeper magic in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's the, it is the fundamental law of all creation that, that God has to abide by. The guilty dies, the innocent lives. The sinner dies, the sinless lives. That is fundamental. It's impossible to get away from it. Even God himself is bound by that. But it's not a bad thing to be bound by because it ensures that whoever is innocent lives. And with absolution, you can say, well, I'm innocent, so I live. Okay? But sin is, at its very core, it's pride. Um, every, really, every kind of sin is a sin of pride, even though it may not be pride. Because every sin is idolatry. Every sin is turning away from God and towards something else, which is why repentance is turning away from something else and turning back to God, an about face. Turning you know, 180 degrees, whatever you turned away from God toward, you just do the reverse in repentance. So sin is pride, it is, it is rebellion against God. Sin is uh, the thing that says, I think that I'll know what's best for me. I think I can make up my mind. And uh, your, your flesh is sinful flesh, like St. Paul says, so as long as you have flesh, you will continue to sin. Uh, so let's talk about sin as such. And uh, what this means is we, you know, we, you, you know what sin, generally speaking, is, but we'll talk about different kinds of sins. So we'd say, we'd make a distinction between original sin, which we talk about a lot, and actual sin. And original sin is the, con the condition of the flesh. Original sin is like a disease. And you are born with the disease. So it's like this, your parents both have this disease. So when the parents get together and they have you, the disease is transmitted to you. You never asked for it, and you didn't do anything to deserve it. It is a disease that your, your parents gave to you, and it is your, ultimately, along with your being, it is another inheritance, primary inheritance um, from your parents. And it goes all the way back to Adam. So the question is, well, how does Eve fall? Because Adam falls. And St. Augustine is really big on this, and it's really, when you start to think about it, it's really fascinating. I don't want to say it's beautiful because it's about sin, but why, why are you a sinner? Why are you punished for the sins of your father? Because you are of your father. Your flesh is your father's flesh. You were in your father when he committed the sin. All of Adam's progeny was of his, is of his flesh and was in his flesh when it was committed. So, and where is Eve from? His flesh. His flesh. When Adam falls, all fall. 
because all are of Adam's flesh. We are all Adam's progeny, which means that when Adam falls, he receives that, that sin of the flesh and then transmits it in the flesh. So that is what original sin is. This, it's a condition that you are in. So you will, one of the things that baptism does is it, it regenerates you. It strengthens you against original sin. It forgives your original sin. But you always have that original sin that gives you the desire to sin. That the really fancy word for it is concupiscence, which is that the uh, inner desire of the heart to commit sin, just like in the, in the cartoon. That when you really look deep into your heart, you know, and without a doubt, that there is sort of a desire to commit sin. Why, Lisa? Because you can have a real good time. Because it's fun. That's Bruce, not me. <laughs> no, but, but you related the story today. Yeah. They'd go out on Saturday night and they had to, they had the dairy. Uh-huh. So he said that when they got up, now Cal says, man, it smelled like a brewery. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's sometimes he come to church smell. <laughs> uh. Yeah, he came to church. So, you know, and the thing is, of course sin is fun, right? Because it's attractive. Why would you want to do something that wasn't going to be fun? Which is why spirituality becomes a discipline because it is always much more fun to commit sin than actually to be disciplined and not to do that. So sin is a very attractive thing, uh, but when your eyes are opened and you realize that you're a sinner, it doesn't stop being attractive, but now you have something that's more attractive. So your regenerate eyes, your regenerate will know that, yeah, I could still have fun doing sin, but there is something that's more attractive even than sin now, which doesn't mean that I don't still fall into the allure of sin, It just means that even when I sin, I know that there is something better than that sin. Whereas the person, the unregenerate person doesn't know. They think it's the best, you know, which is why hedonism is so rampant in society now because whatever I want to do, it's fun for me, it makes me feel good, and it makes me happy, then it's good to do. See, but they don't know any better. Um, So that's... That's uh, original sin. That's an easier one. But actual sin gets a little more uh, complicated because then there's different, little different areas, and we'll talk about those. So actual sin um, is, is what we would call manifest sin. So if you commit a sin, your condition, and part of the reason you find it attractive is because you are diseased with original sin, but then you have given fruit to it. You have manifested it, and it is an actual sin. So when I covet, or when I steal, or when I have a bad thought, that is an actual sin because you have then done it. It is not theoretical and it is not a possibility, it is a fact. It is done. Uh, And those acts, those sins you can manifest in thought, in word, or in deed, which is why we confess in thought, word, and in deed. And now this is going to sound very Catholic and good. There's two kinds of actual sins. You can have an, a, a mortal sin or a venial sin. Now, the, one of the ways, I'll, I'm going to be very charitable, um, one of the ways that the Roman Catholics would distinguish between mortal and venial sins is that they create a classification system. So these sins are mortal sins, so if you commit those, well, then you're in a bad state. But these sins are venial So if you commit those, well, you're not outside of the state of grace. Uh, 
And the state of grace, think of that uh, as like a highway. And you've got two lanes on that highway. You can sort of be on the highway and you can move around. It's not like when you go to an amusement park and you ride the little car ride with your kids and you think, you know, they get happy because they think that they're steering the car but they don't know it's on a track. You know, it's not like that. You actually have the road and you can, you can be on the road um, but you can also go off onto the shoulder or into the ditch. So as long as you're on the pavement, things are okay. And you know, you, if you swerve a little bit, that's okay. You can get realigned to get back in the lane and it's okay. But once you go off the pavement, it's a lot harder to get back on and you're in a, in a worse state being on, you know, off the pavement, either on the shoulder or in the ditch than you would have been just staying on the pavement. And that's sort of a, a, an a analogy for your state of grace. You're living in the state of grace and you're kind of here and there and every now and then, you know, you, you hit the rumble strip and have to go, oh, whoop, you know, you do one of those. <laughs> and you know, but that's, but you're still on the pavement. You go outside your state of grace and you're, you're in the ditch. And they would say the mortal sin is when you're in the ditch and the venial sin is when you're still on the pavement. We wouldn't necessarily look at it that way. No, actually we would look at it that way. We would. But what we don't do is to say these specific sins are venial sins so that, you know, if I lie, well, that's just a venial sin. Uh, or if I steal a small thing, well, it's just a venial sin. Or this and that is just a, ven a venial sin. But I just won't do those other ones because those are, those are mortal sins. Um, so we would still talk about your state of grace, but we don't classify the, the sins. Um, there's a great quote from Martin Chemnitz. Have you ever heard of Martin Chemnitz? He's good. Um, some, his stuff can be kind of stuffy to read, personally, I think. He, he does the old German Lotzi method of theology, which is very organized. It's very German. This is the argument. This is what I think. These are the reasons why I think it. This is why I think you're wrong. And this is my conclusion about it. Point two. You know, it's just like, and you kind of read it going, all right, but you know, jazz it up a little bit, guy. I want to have fun while I'm learning. Uh, but anyway, Martin Chemnitz is a very important theologian and uh, worked on some of the documents in the Book of Concord and is really attributed with ensuring that the work of the first Martin survived. <clears throat> so even the Roman Catholics will say, yeah, the first Martin really wouldn't have survived if it weren't for the second. So Martin Chemnitz is a very uh, big name in the Lutheran Church. Now he has, <clears throat> excuse me, he has this to say. Sorry. Ooh, playing footsie there? <laughs> I'm getting out of this. Yeah, Oof. mortal sins. Yeah. <laughs> mortal sin and venial sin are not distinguished, or excuse me, are distinguished from each other not on the basis of the substance of the deed involved or according to some difference in the sin committed. So we don't say this is a big sin, this is a little sin. Instead, on the basis of the person or on the of the difference of those who commit the sin. So it's not about the substance of the sin, it's about the heart of the person committing the sin. That is what makes it a mortal or a venial sin. So let's talk about that. A venial sin you can think of as a sin from which you can easily recover. And how do you easily recover from sin? It's a sin that you, in, that you regret, that you realize immediately, you know, I, this was bad, I go to confession, I'm sorry, I heartily repent of that, I won't do it again. And it's one that you work really hard not, not to commit again. Um, 
sins that grieve you and that the kind of a sin where you look back on it and you say, yes, that the memory of that sin is terrible and I wish never to do it again. So that's a venial sin because you're still, you know, you're staying in your state of grace. You've gone on to the rumble strip a little bit, but you jerked the wheel and you're back in the lane and you've gone, whew, boy, that could have been really bad, but I'm glad that, you know, I, I'm here, I'm back on the road. That's, that's an instance where you can say Jesus did take the wheel, okay? One of really the only ones I ever, you know, will talk about like that. Uh, a mortal sin is sins that you do not easily recover from. A mortal sin is a sin that you really enjoy, that you sort of know is wrong, but that you're willing still to do. A sin that you're willing to commit and to say, well, I can still trust in the grace of God. I could still go to confession and be absolved of that if I really wanted to. And then after confession and absolution, it's still something that you continue to return to again and again and again and again and again. And everybody has their own venial sins and everybody has their own mortal sins that they struggle with. And only you and the Lord and the devil know what those are for you. That's why we don't, we don't classify it by, well, if you lie, that's a mortal sin or a venial sin because it might be for one person and might not be for another. So. It's, it, it, the mortal sins get very terrible for you. They really are mortal sins because they, they pull your will into it. You know, I commit a sin, a venial sin, and then my will says that was wrong. I don't want to do that again. My will's still not pulled into it. But with a mortal sin, you say, yeah, you know, that was pretty fun. I, I think I want to keep doing that. And the, your, conscious, your conscience takes a back seat. And you can sort of hear it but it gets a little quieter and a little quieter and a little quieter. It's like you're the driver of the limo and you start rolling that back window up while the person is talking. And all of a sudden, a voice is just a very faint echo. Um, it's something that has the consent of the will and the delight of the flesh. So really, the worst, you, you can sort of look at it this way. What is a mortal sin? It's the sin where in your deepest, darkest, cockles of your heart, you say, you know, I think I may rather burn in hell than give this thing up. And you may not actually say that, and you may not actually think that, but when you look at the things that you particularly struggle with, you know, you, you may not, again, be saying that or thinking that, but it, it is, they are very hard things to kick because of the degree to which you enjoy, or even sometimes with addictive sins to which you rely on them. I can't go about my day unless I do this. And then those get even more difficult to kick because, well, I can't function unless I do this. And no matter how hard I try to be disciplined about it, somehow I reach my breaking point and I just go back to it. And those are the sins to really, uh, to really, we're all sins, you know, we worry about. And really we would say all sin is a mortal sin because whoever commits a sin, even if it's a venial sin, is worthy of death. Uh, but, so really it's a degree of recovery. How easy is it for you to recover? How easy is it for you to wrestle with that particular thing? The things that are the hardest and most difficult for you are what we would say is probably a mortal sin. Although, what is the chief sin? And I don't mean, I don't mean you know, of you know, categorized sins, like to say pride is the chief of sins. I mean, what is the chief sin? Whichever one that you don't repent of. The chief, the chief sin is whichever sin you don't repent of. 
Um, and the best way to think about it is the sin that you don't give to Jesus. And why is that the chief sin then for you? The one you don't give to Jesus? Even if you give every other sin to Jesus, but that's the one you want to keep for yourself. Why does that become so detrimental to you? Because then you have sinned, haven't given up your sin. Because you have it, and what happens when you have it? If I really want to hold on to this and keep it and make it be mine, Jesus isn't going to tell me I can't. He's going to tell me I shouldn't, but he's not going to tell me I can't. <coughs> then you'll get what your sin deserves. Yes. Um, <clears throat> you know, we can talk about the sin against the Holy Spirit, which is really, it's refusing Christ, saying no thank you to Christ. But the greatest and most deadly sin is whatever sin you don't give to Jesus. Whatever sin you give to Jesus, he takes care of, he destroys. The sin you don't give to Jesus, the sin you hold to yourself, he can't do anything about because you are the one safeguarding it. They have to be given to Jesus for him to take care of because he will let you hold them for yourself. Remember, C.S. Lewis says this, and I quoted it on last Sunday in my sermon, um, when Christ comes, there's only going to be two types of people. The people who say to the Lord, thy will be done, and the people to whom the Lord says, thy will be done. And that's really the truth. If you want to keep your sins, I'm not going to force you to give them up. It, they're really bad for you, and I love you so much, I don't want you to do that. And I've given every opportunity to ensure that if you give them up, you, you really do have life. Uh, but if you really want to hold on to them, I can't force my love on you. I can't force you to do that. Um, so you may keep them, but there is a cost associated with you holding on to those. And it isn't a good one. And I don't want you to have to pay it. Um, so this is why you stay away from evil. Touching evil incarnates evil. How does evil get a body? How does it become incarnate? By you feeding it. By you feeding it. Evil takes on a body when you feed it. And what do you feed it? You feed it yourself. Jesus feeds you himself, but you feed evil yourself. And evil swallows you up. And your body becomes not a temple of the Spirit, but a temple of, I guess, not a temple of the Holy Spirit, but a temple of legion, a temple of wickedness. Your body is now not the temple of the Lord in sinews and muscle and flesh, but the temple of wickedness. You have given birth, incarnation to evil, and it manifests itself in you, which is a very harsh and scary way to think about sin and evil, but it's the truth. This is what it does to you. This is one reason why once you get into evil and you fall away from the church, it's so much harder for you to get back in because you have to completely, you know, to be sort of gross about it, you have to completely vomit out all of that stuff that you took into yourself and then have to be, you know, put into a spiritual rehab in a sense where you're brought back in slowly and surely. You're like a starving person. A starving person can't just go in and eat a big meal, uh, which is what they want. But if you just feed a starving person, you know, 
a Thanksgiving dinner, they're not gonna, their body isn't going to know what to do with it. You have to start them slowly. They're going to hate you for it, but you have to give them you know, crackers, a few crackers every now and then to get the stomach and the body back into what it needs to do uh, because it's so weak, and toast, and you know, scrambled eggs. Something really gentle and in very small quantities, counterintuitive. And that's what, sort of what it's like. Touching evil incarnates evil, and, and getting back from that is very difficult. So that's why Jesus just says, hey, just stay away from it. The reason that he says that is because it isn't good for you. I said this last time, but this is always my ongoing joke. I don't want you to put your nose in a meat slicer. Not because, you know, maybe you will think that it's a lot of fun. The fun is not the thing that matters. Maybe it is fun, but the reason I don't want you to do it is not because I don't want you to have fun, but because it isn't good for you. There are tons of things that are fun that are also not good for you. I love roller coasters, but I don't think they're good for me. I love candy and sweets, uh, and I can guarantee you they're not good for me. Uh, there are lots of things that are good for you, lots of things that are fun and enjoyable that aren't good for you. Fast food isn't good for you, but does that stop people from swinging through the McDonald's every now and then? Nobody goes there thinking, oh, this is going to be a really good meal for me. <laughs> Everybody knows it's bad for them, but it tastes good. And there's, I don't know, there's just something about... McDonald's. <laughs> well, yeah, I, it's no gourmet place. You know, if I had the choice between you know a big old greasy Five Guys burger and McDonald's, boy, I'm, I'll take that Five Guys burger. But I think that's probably even worse for me than McDonald's. You, you haven't been to McDonald's recently. Overpriced. Well, it it is it is overpriced and it is bad for you. I I can't wholly say that it's terrible because I'd still go there and eat. But you can go to Five Guys tonight if you want. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, even Five Guys. No one is going to go to Five Guys and take the aluminum foil off of that beautiful, beautiful, greasy smash burger and go, I, my heart is going to thank me for this. <laughs> but you're still going to do it. Nobody is going to say, boy, I'm going to eat three scoops of ice cream tonight with chocolate sauce while I watch TV on the couch because it's so good for me. You do it because it's fun. You know, it's relaxing. I want to do it. It tastes good. I can, I can be a fat sack on the couch and I don't care because I enjoy it. But it isn't good for you. So the question is never about is it good for me or is it fun or not. The question is always is it good for me and the answer is it's not. Sin is never good for you. Sin is one of those things that really doesn't even taste good. I guess sin kind of is like McDonald's. So it's like, why do I keep going back? I could go someplace and get something much better, but, you know, it's just, I keep going back. Why do I do this? You know, that's sort of, I guess sin is sort of like that. You know, I keep going, and I think it's going to be much better, and it's okay, but it's not the best thing I've ever had, and, and it is costly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, right, I'm going to have to do that. Uh, so uh, that's why Jesus says don't sin because it's bad for you and he doesn't want you to take the things that are bad for you. Putting your nose in a meat slicer is really bad for you. I'm not trying to be a buzzkill when I tell you not to do it. I'm just looking out for you. It's, it's bad for you. 
Uh, and I don't want things that are bad for you. I only want things that are good for you. I don't want you to get messed, messed up into bad things. Why do I tell the children not to get involved with Ouija boards when everybody else is nowadays? Well, you, you can go to the board game store and buy a Ouija board. Oh, it's fun. Oh, let's play a game. Uh, it's not because I don't want you to have fun. Heck, if you want to have fun playing a board game, come on over to the parsonage. Uh, and I'll give you, I'll give you, I think I, someone at the Ministerial Alliance ratted me out to the rest of the group and said, oh, I think he probably has at least 100 games in his collection. They're all just sitting organized on shelves. And I said, well, I don't think it's 100. So I had to look. At, I keep it all cataloged. I've got a special account. And every time we play a game, I log that we've kept the play. And then I go through the records. And I can keep notes about where we played and how the game went and who won. And that's a, yeah, I'm in real deep. <laughs> Piker compared to my daughter and son-in-law. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, good. I, at least I'm in good company. So, so anyway, you know, I said, well, you know, I don't think I have a hundred. Well, I've got like seventy-eight. So, <laughs> still sub a hundred. But, but you know, if, so if you want to come and play a real good game and still have fun, come and I'll help you with that. But just don't do those other things because they're maybe you'll think they're fun, but they're really bad for you. And, and so Jesus isn't a buzzkill. Jesus wants you to have fun, but Jesus wants you to have fun in the best ways. Jesus doesn't want you to sled down the hill that's full of trees. He wants you to sled down the hill that's just as steep, that's nice and clear. And you say, well, it's fun steering through the trees. And, and you know, Jesus is like the mother that goes, I don't care if it's fun. I don't want you doing it. You're going to break a leg, and I'm going to have to take you into the ER, and I don't want to do that. But just go down this one. It's the same gradient, and you can have just as much fun, and I don't have to worry about you. That's Jesus. Jesus is the mother hen who wants to bring her brood in because he loves his brood. He loves his children. He doesn't want anything bad for them. But he's also not a helicopter parent. So if you want to go and do that, then you do. And then, and then he'll be there to help you uh, when you call to him. But he's the one that says, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Now don't do that again, okay? That's really bad. So uh, Jesus wants you to live. To submit to evil, because that's what you're doing. Sin is, you, you can only do one of two things. You can submit to good, which is faith. You're submitting to Jesus. Or you can submit to evil. But you, in either case, you are giving your will over to someone else. You are saying, okay, you tell me what to do. All right, Jesus, you tell me what to do. That's good. And Jesus will say, great, we're going to have a great time. I'll tell you the rules of the game, and we're going to have so much fun. And then you go and you say, okay, evil, you tell me what to do. Listen, heart, tell me what I should be doing. And the heart says, sin. This is what's good for you. This is what's going to be fun. And it's submitting. And when you incarnate evil in yourself, you're submitting to that evil. You're giving it free reign over you. You're giving it power over you. And then you reach the point where, like Jesus says, these kind can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. Uh, you get to the point where you, you just can't turn around and go back. Uh, you've gone too far down one road, and you have to fight your way to get back to the way you're supposed to be on. Um, hmm. This is discouraging. I have hash marks, and we haven't made it to the hash marks. <laughs> All right, well, let me hand this out. We'll close with this handout then. Oh, I don't need it. I have it. Here you go, Casey. This is really good. I love this.
is a poem called Repairer of Fences by a woman named Jessica Powers. Um, we don't have time to look at this today. I'll try and, we'll try and make sure we have time next week. But Ezekiel 18, I think it's eight, Ezekiel 18.37 is the passage we use a lot when we say, the Lord desires not the death of, death of the sinner, but that he turn from his wicked ways and live. But all of Ezekiel 18 is the Lord pleading with his beloved, please don't do this. This is so bad for you. Please don't do it. It's like my mother. Please don't ever get a motorcycle. Or, you know, please don't ever smoke a cigarette. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that. Or a souped up truck with, you know, Well, that's, that's my wife. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's not because she worries for me. It's because she says, I would be embarrassed driving through town looking like that. And I said, why? It looks cool. And she said, no, it doesn't. It looks ridiculous. <laughs> I wouldn't put the lights on, but, but I said, but think of, I mean, you know, if you've got, if you got that suspension lift on your 1984 Ford Bronco with the big 36 inch tires and a winch on the front, who's going to stop you? I can go anywhere I want. I can take that thing. I can go through the ditch and I won't even feel it. And she said, when are you ever going to need to do that? And I said, that's the thing. I can't answer that question. And that's why I need it. Because if I can't answer it, it means I never know. And I'd rather be prepared, wouldn't you? And she didn't really go for that. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, someday. I may, maybe, maybe over years and years I'll get her worn down, but I wouldn't count on it. She's pretty stubborn. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's look at this. I am alone. I am alone in the dark. And I am thinking what darkness would be mine if I could see the ruin I wrought in every place I wandered, and if I could not be aware of one who follows after me. Whom do I love, O God, when I love thee? The great undoer who has torn apart the walls I built against a human heart. The mender who has sewn together the hedges through which I broke when I went seeking ill the love who follows and forgives me still. Fumbler and fool that I am, I am a bear of very little brain. Fumbler and fool that I am, with things around me, a fragile make like souls, how I am blessed to hear behind me footsteps of a savior. I sing to the east, I sing to the west. God is my repairer of fences, turning my paths into rest. This is the life of the Christian. You know the whole, the whole footsteps in the sand thing that was sort of popular? I always thought it was kind of silly personally, and I'm not saying that anybody who, who, who liked it was wrong, but this is why I think it personally was kind of silly, because the Lord follows you. He doesn't pick you up and carry you. He's following you. <clears throat> He follows you and he sees where you're going. And when you fall, he'll help to pick you up. And when you, I love the idea of straying after ill. You're on the way. And it's like, you know, like a corn maze. What's the rule of the corn maze? You're not allowed to cut through the corn. So you're on this path and then you decide, ooh, something sounds fun over there. And you start cutting through the corn. And you realize what you've done and you say, oh, I need to get back. And Jesus followed behind and you say, well, luckily he knows the way. And then as he pulls you back, he repairs it and he puts it all back the way it was. The great undoer. That's really, really, uh, that's really a big deal. 
it's really profound that he is the great undoer. Because it isn't just that he is the taker away. Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And, and this is what that means, by the way. So when we say Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we're not saying that he simply removes them from us. When he takes away, they don't exist. He, it is a removal. He is an undoer. Everything that I have done, everything that I have wrought, as I sit here alone in the darkness, he undoes, undoes. <laughs> Sorry. You know, my grandpa used to tell this story. He said there was a radio program called The Shadow. And he said there was, there was this whole introduction every time, and it would end with, you know, who knows the blah, 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 blah. And it would be, yeah, the evil that looks in the hearts of men. The Shadow does. And he said there was one time when the announcer was... He couldn't be there, and so they had another announcer come in, and he said, boy, you couldn't tell. You know, they, it, was a, it was a black man, that, and it was a really big deal that they had hired this black man, and he said, but you couldn't tell. He, he said it so well, who knows the shadow that, or the, the evil that lurks in the hearts of men. He said, you couldn't tell until the end when he said, the shadow do. <laughs> and I just, well, that it is. The, you know, who knows what you do. Well, the Lord, you sit alone in the dark looking at what, what you've done and considering what you may have done that you don't even know about because you know that you're just a giant bull in this tiny china shop of life. And you're just always running around breaking things. Even when you're trying to be good, you still end up, you know, you're good on one end. Oh, I, I, I missed this plate with my head and my horns, but somehow my tail still knocked something off behind me. You know, even when you're, when you're trying your very best to do good, and willing to do good, you can, never knock, you can never not knock down dishes somewhere in some place. And the Lord is the one who is the great undoer. We say, oh, I'm so sorry I knocked that down. He says, don't worry, and then it's back together. You know, like putting the ear back on Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Well, there it is, don't worry about it. I'm the great undoer. Peter cut off an ear, I undid it. Uh, you broke some dishes, I undid it. You have some sins. I undid it. This is, this is the, uh, a picture of your life, walking and movement. I love that, that you are walking, you are on a path, and that the Lord is the one who is repairing things and the great undoer who follows behind after you. And where is your comfort? Your comfort is in knowing that he's right behind you. And how do you know he's right behind you? Because you can hear him. But he's also in front of you. He's behind you following, and he's also in front of you leading. It's really, it's really neat. So... Um, there is forgiveness for sins and forgiveness is life. So the way that I want you to think about absolution is that um, you still keep the Ten Commandments. Can, can you say, I have kept the law of God? No. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you can, right? <clears throat> now, you can't say it because you've said, I've never sinned. There's a difference between saying, I've kept the law of the Lord and I have not sinned. You cannot say, I have not sinned, generally. You can say, I have not committed this specific sin, or I, I chose not to do that sin, or I choose to be good. But you can never say, I do not sin. But you can say, I keep the law of the Lord, because you keep the law of the Lord in Christ. So when you read things in the Psalms about, oh, I love the law of the Lord, oh Lord, how I meditate on your law day and night, and all this about the law of God, <clears throat> you think about, how do I keep the law? Well, I keep the law in Christ. That's absolution, is you keeping the law in Christ. So Augustine has a great quote where he says, and this is one I actually do want you to remember. It's very short, but 
All the commandments of God are kept when what is not kept is forgiven. And this is a great comfort to you. That's why I want you to remember this quote. All the commandments of God are kept when what is not kept is forgiven. Because you will undoubtedly, um, you will undoubtedly combat despair at certain points in your life. And perhaps that's even now that in the midst of trials and woes, you are fighting with yourself not to sink down into despair. Uh, despair is a terrible thing. You should, you should never sink down into despair. Despair is an absolute lack of hope. Um, so don't ever be caught up in thinking that despair is good for you and that it's, that, you know, don't let the temptations that tell you, you know, the toll booths that say you're a sinner and you got to pay and you say, well, I can't pay and then, and then you are tempted into despair. Don't let that do that. Don't let it work because you have the power for it not to work because Christ tells you all of my commandments are kept when all the ones that aren't kept are forgiven you. And how many of them will he forgive you? All. All the ones that you give to him, he will acquit. That is why he continues to call his people to repentance. Not because he says, you guys are a bunch of sinners, you need to be better. Keep on coming here and repent. It's because he says, this is what life is. Constant, a, a life of constant repentance is a life of constantly turning away from evil and touching what is good and giving my sins to Jesus. When Jesus says, put your burdens on me, it's not a one-time done deal. It's continuous. Keep on putting your things on me. Keep on doing it. Once you've been reborn, I've taken some of your burden. You just keep on putting them on me. Anytime you have it, put them on me for as long as you live. And that is absolution. This is why the life of the Christian must be one of repentance, not out of guilt or shame, even though contrition is part of that, but rather as uh, Christ's people seeking life, where life is found, and life is found in forgiveness of sins. Um, any questions about? This is going back to the beginning. Yeah, good, go. I asked a question about <clears throat> a friend or a that you're close with does something and she doesn't know. Sure. But if you have somebody that's like your enemy and they constantly stand against you, I mean, for years, you can, and your family, you confront them anytime it's in I never did anything wrong. The irrational person. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I struggle with that, I could go on and forgive that person, and it's constant. You know, I live a little bit that I do something. But, you know. Well, uh, to ask, how do I forgive somebody when they continue to be uh, irrational bears, that statement bears two responses. The first one is, you forgiving them has nothing to do with how they are. They very well may be irrational, but that isn't something that determines whether or not they are forgiven. They may continue to be irrational, and as long as they're irrational, you keep being Forgiven. Uh, the forgiveness is on you, not on how they act. Um, so you can forgive somebody who is irrational to you, and even if they decide, well, I want nothing to do with you, and, and I hate your guts and all of that, you can still say, okay, I, I still forgive you, and I will not be the one to let your irrational behavior be the thing that dictates how I interact with you. I will still be kind to you. I will still take care of you. Um, if there are problems, I will still help you. I'll still look at you the way that God looks at you because that's what the Lord wants for me to do and that's what it means for me to live in Him. 
even when they are irrational. I mean, think of Jesus on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them. Were they being rational? No, and the Lord, you know, it's not about them, and it's not about how they are behaving toward you. It's all about you reflecting the love of Christ, you being Christ. Um, the second thing is, forgiveness is irrational. And you can't deal, you can't deal, excuse me, yeah, forgiveness is irrational. But you going to talk to somebody and saying, well, let's, you know, you've sinned against me, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's trying to reason with the irrational, and you just can't do it. You just have to love irrationally, and that, because that's the way that Jesus does. Again, whatever Jesus does, you do. That's faith. Faith follows Jesus. What Jesus says, you say. Um, and Jesus says, forgive them, Father. And St. Stephen says, forgive them, Father, too, echoing those same words as they're stoning him to death, asking, them to, asking for the Lord to forgive them. So um, forgiveness is not dependent upon the other person especially when you consider that forgiveness is you living as if you had forgotten. They may well continue to do things, and then you will continue to live as if you had forgotten those things and not let those things define how you interact. The other thing is, you can, well, you know, what do I do? Well, pray. Pray for that person. Part of forgiveness is praying for that person. You can never hate or be angry with the person that you continue to pray for. And then you pray for yourself that you would continue uh, to pray for them and the Lord would give you the strength to live in that way and that you would be filled with Christ's love. And then you come to church and receive Christ's body and blood and learn better to love the people that you hate from being filled with Christ's love. The more of Christ that you get inside of you, the more you get to be like Christ. You know, that's the whole thing. Live the Christian life. Come and get the sacrament as often as you can because that's the thing that's going to fill you up with Jesus. You are what you eat. If you want to be like Jesus, then come and eat Jesus and he'll fill you up. So all of those are sort of the avenues that I would use to answer that. So hopefully, is that enough? Okay, because I can give you more if you want, but you're going to be here all day. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of treats if you want to stay longer. <laughs> okay, and you. Not, not only that he'll fix, that he undoes. That's Because that's, it, it's not like you break the plate and then he glues it back together. Because if he does, you can always tell when something's been broken. You can, you can, you know, it might be intact, but you can still see it bears a scar. But with Jesus, there aren't scars when it comes to sins like this. When Jesus, he is the undoer. It's like he goes back in time and he takes it away completely. It actually didn't happen. He is an undoer. This is about our bow. Everything he touches, he breaks. <laughs> and I had a 33-year-old, one of those popper things, you know? Yeah. 43, it was hers. And I'll be, if the other day he doesn't come up, and it's in two pieces. <laughs> but it's not his fault. Well, sure, <laughs> yeah. he put it under here, and his brother pulled it up like this, that happened. And he, we have another, uh, the other girls happened to got this nice kitchen set. Uh -huh. You know? He, I don't know what he did to it, but he brings it up and he says, look at this. I can fix it. It's like, what does that boy do? Yeah, he needs an undoer. I'd like to have him with that other person. But anyway, he, he just can, he, he's kind of like, I don't know, he just, he just, you know, can't control himself. Yeah. But he'll always tell you. Well, that's, that's good. And then that one, one time there was something loose outside, and he said, 
he said to his mom, I did that, but Mimi doesn't care. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> so, yeah. Mimi doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, I never think that was these guys. <laughs> some of them are girl things, you know. Yeah. We took care you were girls, yeah. Anyway, yeah. they don't play with that stuff the same. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. All right, any other questions or anything? Okay. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Seth, I forgot to tell you. You have homework now for Catechumenate. It begins with this lesson. This is your homework. You need to come to private confession and absolution two times. The first time that you come, I'll, I'll walk you through everything, and I'll teach you how to do it, and I don't want you to confess any particular things. Just go read the thing and ignore when it says, here you can confess things that bother you. Just ignore it, because I want you to see it's really not that scary. The second time that you come, then, then it'll be for real, okay? So sometime between now and May, the end of May, I need you to come to confession two times, and that's your homework, okay? So just... <laughs> Yeah, he probably, he needs to go, doesn't he? he, he, he now, every, anybody who wants to, you're, you're welcome to do that, but this is homework specific to the catechumens. So, yeah, he was telling the story last night again about uh, Seth going into Children's Mercy and almost being late and then saying, they said, oh boy, how, how you, you were in the traffic jam, weren't you? And he said, oh yeah, we were. And Papa said the F word four times. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, the story, I've heard it, the story before, and he tells it the same way every time, and he ends it with, well, you know, and you can't hit a kid for telling the truth. 